he's in my heart he's in my you know I still I think of him every day there would be something that would remind me of him um, it's not as not as painful as it was in the first year two three years um, mm. so I said it does get better definitely mm. does but there's obviously there is you know and that's that was that started on the moment on the, the moment the morning when I woke up and my waters had broken there is this hope that suddenly this this dream that you have that you you know of your second child or first child and you suddenly realize this is obviously not going to go the way mm. I was wishing it would go. Hello and welcome my name is Liz Gleason and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from ordinary people on their experience of loss, how their grief impacted them and what helped them to find their feet again. Loss can really have such a profound effect on our lives and it is my hope that Shapes of Grief will provide comfort, hope and inspiration to our listeners so that together we can get more comfortable talking about grief. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, so please do donate, like, share and review. It really does keep us going. For more grief resources and grief support, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. Welcome to Shapes of Grief and today I'm joined by Beatrice Caffrey. Beatrice, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Some of you may have listened to the last podcast episode with Justin, who is uh, married to Beatrice and together um, they have a family here in Greystones, Beatrice, Mm -hmm. Justin and Luca. And Beatrice is here to talk about their son, Joshua, um, who never made it back to Greystones. Um, and I'm so grateful to have you here because this is the first podcast I've done where we have a wife and a husband giving their perspectives on their loss um, and hopefully it'll shed some light on the difference between yes. um, male grief and female grief which mm. is often uh, quite different not always but often is and yeah it's, it's a real gift to you showing mm. up to do this so that listeners who may be going through some kind of loss and might be struggling in their marriage or struggling to understand why their partner doesn't feel the way they do or isn't responding the way they are, it's a real gift to give your perspective, um, especially given that you're such a strong unit now, uh, years on. So Beatrice, we, when we heard from Justin, um, he told us how you know, about his early life and how you guys met and um, how you went on to get married and decide to start a family. Yes. And you had Luca. Um, and then after Luca, you started facing into a serious, a series of losses. Would it be okay with you to start more or less there? Yeah. Or give yeah, us, you know, a little bit of uh, a lead in to, to your part of the story, if you like. So, um, as Justin had mentioned, we met in London in about 2004. I had lived in London before uh, for about a year and a half. 
Um, so my background, I'm, I was born in Germany uh, in 1969. I went to school there, finished school and then left to uh, pursue a career in hotel management and worked in or lived in Switzerland, in Paris, in Mauritius, in Singapore and then eventually ended up in, in London. And um, I had actually been married before in Mauritius. I was divorced and wasn't really interested in getting married again. The concept of marriage, I didn't really believe that it was necessary at that stage. And I've had a few relationships, but there was never a point where I thought, oh yes, I would like to get married again. And then I met Justin and yes, initially, as he described in his podcast, I didn't take to him straight away. It took a little <laughs> bit of convincing, but I think that was only because at that stage I had, I was in my mid thirties. I had a good, good, very good job. I had a good career in hotel management in London. And I actually thought I'm going to focus on myself and my career development. And I'd signed up for this executive management course in, 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 uh, in the US in Cornell University through my, through my, uh, through the company that I worked for in London. And so when I met Justin, I kind of thought, you know what, no, 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 I'm kind of thinking of myself, you know, thinking me, this is my time now. Were you a bit cynical about marriage or relationships? Yes, yes. Mm. And probably in the kind of 18 months before in London, maybe I had been a little bit, not naive, but there were a couple of smaller or shorter relationships and maybe I was getting my hopes up too high and then I was disappointed and then I thought, you know what, just not saying don't waste your time, but think about yourself first before you know, put yourself first, and then if something happens, if a relation comes, a relationship comes along, great. Because it's a it's a rocky road. It can be. It can yeah. be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so Justin and I met, and uh, we had our first drink together. And I thought, we are having just a drink, and then I'm going home. This is it. I'm not going anywhere else tonight. And I actually lived right around the corner from the pub where we first met. So we had our drink and then I got up and I said to him, you're really nice, but I'm, I'm going. This is not for me, which is obviously which threw him completely because he had come to the evening with different expectations. Um, what was your first impression of him? Um, I liked him and uh, probably compared to other kind of first dates, because uh, as Justin had mentioned, we'd met through um, online, date, online dating. He really was what he the way he described himself in his profile. A lot of people would make things up and or they will describe themselves as something different than what you actually see then. Whereas with him, it was really what you saw was what you get. And, and that's what he had described. It wasn't anything more, it wasn't anything less. And I really liked the honesty with him. Um, but um, so we kind of, we, we stayed in contact through text messages in the weeks after, but I was a bit slow with responding, which obviously he didn't really like. And then famously, as he said, I'm going to send her one last text. And if she doesn't respond within an hour, in an hour, that, within an hour that's it. And I still <laughs> remember the day because it was kind of between Christmas and New Year and I was working and it was a very quiet day. And I saw the text coming in on my phone and I responded this straight away. So luckily I did that because otherwise we wouldn't be here today. Um, and then we met again for, for a second date in um, January and we had a really nice dinner. We actually noticed that we had a lot of interests in common. We liked the same music, we liked the same movies, these kind of things. And I thought, hmm, this is quite interesting actually. I think I, I, quite, I like him quite a lot. And then we got together in February, got engaged. And, I, and yes, most importantly, I suddenly, as soon as we got together, I actually thought I could marry him. There was wow. this, this feeling that I didn't have with anybody else in the, whatever, 18 months or two years before, that was suddenly there and I couldn't explain it, but mm. it was there. 
and it's interesting from you're not for me yeah. to oh my god I could marry him and I'm curious and I know this isn't about <laughs> grief and it's not a relationship <laughs> podcast but lots of us will be curious about this do you think that it was your own defenses and cynicism and you know almost that confirmation bias relationships aren't you know are hard and aren't going to work out therefore I'm going to just walk away before this becomes another messy one do you think it was you were projecting stuff onto that first meeting that made it impossible for you to to relate to him or like him um i think probably yeah i, th I think actually i was more relaxed i was going into this more relaxed as in uh, i didn't really have uh, I didn't have high expectations, and I don't mean this in a bad way towards Justin, but I just thought, we're just gonna go and have a drink. You know, this is not a first date. This is, you know, just have a good time, enjoy it. And, and if it works out, it works out, but don't put your hopes up too high that you think you're suddenly going to meet, you know, that every date is going to be the right person. And I think I was just in a much more relaxed state. Um, and then it was just a matter of, you know, meeting the right person. It was, it was luck, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So you yeah. so you woke up one morning and thought I can marry this man. Yeah, very, very shortly, very after. quickly, and yeah. and even the way Justin had said he hadn't had any kind of um, meaningful relationships before. But as soon as we got together, so we got together in February, two thousand and five, and we within weeks started talking about getting married, and to both of us this was really natural, which is quite strange really. And I, I remember at the time telling a friend of mine that we were getting married, and she I think people thought. You are, really? You've only just met this guy? Um, and then I remember uh, we, were t we talked about where we were going to get married and I got really annoyed because I said, you haven't even asked me properly, you haven't even proposed, you know, you, we can't talk about organising our wedding and you haven't even asked me. So he pulled off this amazing stunt um, where he proposed to me. So we, he told me, we met one evening for a drink at the Savoy Hotel in London and he told me we were going to meet some friends of his. And actually what was happening is he took me into one of their private meeting rooms where there was a dining table and a little man with a guitar <laughs> and he got down on his knee and he asked me and I was completely blown away because I hadn't expected that. Um, and so we got uh, engaged, that was in May 2005 and then we got married in, in November 2005. So uh, yes, it was all very quickly then. <laughs> Once you know, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it was unexpected. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. But yes, so we, um, I was in my mid-30s then, um, and we did quite quickly think about, start, uh, think about uh, having children. Um, I think we both wanted to have children. Actually, our ideal at the time, we thought we would have three. And then I remember we were in a restaurant one night, and we saw a couple with three children. They, I think they had completely lost control of the whole situation. We thought, oh, no, no, maybe two is fine. We'll <laughs> stick to two. And um, Josh, um, sorry, Luca was born then in April 2007. And um, as Justin had mentioned, he was born with a cleft lip and cleft palate and had several surgeries in his 
first year and then later on as well. Uh, and then we wanted to have another child, so we kept trying for the second one. It, I had no problem getting pregnant, but I had a problem staying pregnant. Um, so I had three miscarriages in the course of, I think, about a year and a half. And um, yes, it is very different, obviously, from the point of view of the person that's carrying the baby, because the moment you, you, you find out that you're pregnant, or the moment you even think about getting pregnant, the moment you conceive, your life changes because you, 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 know, you, you can't drink alcohol, there's certain things you can't eat, you, you, you think about what's going to happen in whatever, eight, nine months when the baby's born, what's, what's the plan, you know, your life is going to change completely. And this goes through your mind every single day. Whereas for the other partner that is not carrying the baby, that doesn't happen at that stage. That mm. happens much later in the pregnancy when, the, when they can feel the baby, when it's more visible, it's more tangible. Um, where well, you're sharing your body with another living being. Yes. That living being is in your energetic space. Absolutely. And the moment you wake up, you're aware there's two of us right here. Absolutely, exactly. From, from day yes. one. Yes. Yeah. So when that, then when you're repeatedly being told, you know, this is not working, it is, it's devastating. Um, so the first miscarriage happened kind of quite, quite naturally. For the second miscarriage, I went uh, to the hospital for the, pr the, the procedure. And then for the third miscarriage, um, it was at home where you take a tablet and you start bleeding. And it's kind of a natural process, which is quite horrendous, really. And I wasn't quite prepared on the day for how it happens. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think, actually, that was a difficult day because I was completely on my own in that sense, because Justin had, didn't have a clue really what was going on. Yeah. And like he would say himself, he was emotionally not very available for that kind of thing to go on. And it strikes me that this is your experience, that you're so alone, you're not prepared. Um, I had a guest a few weeks ago called Hayley Manning, mm. who's also had multiple miscarriages and every one of them was different. Yes. You know, it was a different pregnancy, it was a different loss. But she describes how she was not prepared for yeah. some of, you know, some of what happened to mm. her. And it's terrible. We should be doing better for our women. This might happen or this could happen or it might look like this. Yeah. Did nobody give you any sort of guidelines of what you um, might expect? In the hospital, there was a nurse and she said there will be a lot of blood. And she, she repeatedly said she repeatedly said there will be a lot of blood. Um, and I would, I, would, I would suspect, I mean, this was 2008, 2009, I would suspect now, 10 years later, if this was happening to you, I would, I would suspect that you could find much more information online about it. Whereas back then, that wasn't available. And it was always just this phrase, yes, there will be a lot of blood. Um, but you don't really expect, you know, what is it is a lot? Is this normal or is this too much? Or yeah. um, how, you know, how many hours is this going to take? You know, how, how long is this going to go on for? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there was very little information at the time. Were you scared? Yes, yes I was, yeah. Uh, mm. So this, this went on for a period of about six hours, I would say. Um, so, so you take, if I remember correctly, I think you take one tablet and then you take the next, the next one, I think 24 hours later or 40 hours, I can't quite remember. And then the whole bleeding starts and it, it goes on for about, well, for me it went on for about six hours, but it's, it's a constant loss of blood. So mm -hmm. you're constantly going to the bathroom. 
and you think, is this going to go on for all night? Can I actually mm. go to bed? And then eventually it stops and then you think, okay, I think I can go to bed now, I can sleep now. But I was completely on my own with that and it's um, quite um, strange if, we, if you think about it now. Yeah. Um, yes. If men had miscarriages, <laughs> there's no way. Everything would be different. But really, <laughs> yes. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, you know. yeah it, was, it, was a, it was a really difficult day. Um, and why do us and women, I, and why do we not pull in our girlfriends and go, just be here with me, you know? No, yeah, I mean, to be fair, we did live, we had recently moved to a relatively new area, so um, I probably didn't have any friends at that, or close girlfriends that I could have called, called at that stage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You know, if but if if somebody is going through that stage, and if you have, if you know anybody who's maybe gone through a similar experience, just call them up and ask for, ask for just ask for information. You know, yeah. was this the same for you? Is this how it happened? Do you think this is normal? I mean, obviously there was a there was a helpline that I could have called. You know, mm. if, if I had been really scared or really worried yeah. that something was going wrong, but I did. Even though I was scared, but I did really still think, okay, this is this is what's supposed to happen. This is normal. Yeah. Yeah, this is not anything unusual. I mean, the point unusual. is, it's not something that a woman should have to go through alone. No. You know, either, no. either th our partners need to become more aware of yeah. how devastating this is and mm. how dramatic and traumatic. Yeah. Um, and our friends do as well. You know, don't assume that it's private and personal and leave them be. You know, maybe say, can I come over and bring dinner? Can I, yes. you know, just, yeah, we need to yeah. step in there for each mm -hmm. other. I remember I was, I was part of a, uh, um, th this was in the UK, so you have the NCT, which is the National Childbirth Trust. So you have like a pregnancy group that you, you kind, of, kind of become part of. But obviously they're not the ones really that you're going to call because the others are pregnant. So but yeah. if there was some other body organization, the helpline that you could call maybe, yeah. Um, and just to get information, just to, or reassurance, probably. I think that's the right thing yeah. to do. That's yeah. all you want, that everything is, yeah, it's not fine, but it's fine in the context of what's supposed to happen, that it's, this is normal, you know, not to be worried about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm. And uh, how many weeks pregnant were you at this point? Um, I was about 10, 11 weeks, so it all, yeah. all three miscarriages happened at about that stage. So then at that stage, then afterwards, so this had been going on for, think about a year and a half and I thought I actually just need a break I I was yeah. coming up to I think I was 40 then and I thought I just need a break from this whole pregnancy thing and constantly thinking am I going to be pregnant are we going to have another baby and I, I think we just and I we talked about it and we said you know what we have one child he's happy he's healthy why don't we just leave it at that did it take over your life for that year exactly and a half? yeah it did it did yeah. and I needed a break from that and and even I was actually ready to say you know what let's just keep it at one it's fine you know it's, it's okay and then obviously as it happens when you start saying that that's when you get pregnant again because you're not thinking about it well and Justin said you actually were pregnant when you had that discussion probably I may have been I can't remember that but um, I found out then that I was pregnant again and and I said to myself okay I'm not going to do because normally I think you do a scan so I did the, normally you would do the pregnancy test, obviously when you find out, and then you do a scan maybe at about eight or nine weeks to make sure everything is fine. And I said to myself, I'm not going to do a scan until 12 weeks because I'm not going to worry about this. I'm just going to keep calm. 
Scalia. Were yeah. you able to do that? I was, but then, so then it was November 2009, it was our wedding anniversary, and Justin had arranged that we were going to go to Florence for the weekend. And I thought, do you know what, I'm going to go and do a scan, because if I've had another miscarriage, at least I can drown my tears in some nice Italian red wine in Florence. <laughs> so, so off we went before our weekend in Florence, off we went to get the scan done. And uh, I still remember the nurse saying, yeah, yeah, you're pregnant. And not only are you pregnant, but you're not nine weeks, you're 11 weeks pregnant. So, or 12 weeks. So I had actually gone past the critical stage. So, you know, where the, the miscarriage often would happen. So I thought, okay, so this is actually happening now. I am really pregnant, great. So we went on our nice weekend in, in Florence. I didn't drink any red wine, just slept lots and, and um, just got used to the fact that this was this pregnancy was actually going to happen now um, and then at that stage uh, Justin had sold the shares in his business back then and we would kind of toyed with the ideas of maybe leaving England and moving to we'd, we kind of toyed with the idea of either Canada or Spain for a change of lifestyle and you now Luca was still very young he was two at that stage so it would have been early for him you know before school starts so in February 2010, then um, when I was just about six, six months pregnant, we um, decided to, uh, we went to Spain for a week because we'd identified that Spain was going to be the country. We'd identified an area about an hour east of Malaga and we were going to go down and look at houses and schools and all that. So we went down in February 2010, spent three or four days just looking in houses, not doing anything else. And then we had two days left where we thought, okay, we'll just relax before we're flying back to the UK. And then uh, I woke up the next morning and my waters had broken. And I remember lying there and I'm thinking, this cannot be happening. I mean, I'm in Spain, we're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't the middle of nowhere, but then again, it was because- What were you feeling? What was running through your head? You were 25 weeks pregnant. I was 25 weeks pregnant. I remember it was a Sunday morning, it was half six, and I was lying in bed and, I, and you get this feeling, you just want to pull the duvet over your head and you think, can somebody else just deal with this? But obviously, you know, you can't, you have to deal with this yourself. Now, so my waters had broken, um, now this wasn't a, this was just a kind of a trickle, where you, but you know, if you've been pregnant before, you know what it is. And I thought, oh my God, we've got to go somewhere where I said, I thought if I'm giving birth to this baby today, I need to be somewhere where at least I can speak English. Because my Spanish was, I spoke a little bit of Spanish, but not enough to, you know, give yeah. birth and, and understand, you know, communicate yeah. with doctors and all that. So we were, so as I said, we were an hour east of Malaga. So I thought, okay, if we go west of Malaga, then you go towards the Costa del Sol, you go to Marbella and all that. And I'm thinking there must be a hospital there. You know, they will speak English because in the area that we were, people spoke very little English. It was very Spanish. So we drove to uh, Marbella, ended up in, the, uh, in, a, in a private clinic there at about nine o'clock on the Sunday morning. And the doctor said, he didn't even examine me, he said, there's only one place you can go, it's the pediatric hospital in Malaga. If this baby comes out, it's the, only, it's the only place where they can help you. So we ended up there then on the Sunday morning. Now I'd still, I hadn't, didn't have any contractions, nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. And we arrived there and they just gave me a hospital gown and said, okay, we'll bring you up to your room. I thought, okay. Um, eventually then, now this took, 
nearly 24 hours or 48 hours, eventually then somebody told me, okay, you're going to have to stay here in the hospital until you're 34 weeks pregnant. You cannot travel back to the UK, it's too dangerous. Uh, 34 weeks, um, you will be induced, because 34 weeks mm. is kind of the safest time for the baby to come out, you will be induced, obviously, mm. unless something else happens before. And I think for a lot of people listening, you think in pregnancy, oh, when my waters break, I need to give birth within two days or infection could yeah. set in. But actually, when it's just a leak, the waters do replenish themselves. Yes. And some people can wait weeks and weeks, even months. Yeah with leak leaking exactly but water is replenishing themselves yes and yeah. but you have to be in a see they 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 thought felt it was best that it had to be in a hospital environment because obviously contractions could start at any moment yeah. or something could happen at any moment um so it's funny because we obviously we, we went on holidays to spain you think well you know we just fly to spain it's not that far away but then suddenly you realize it's very far away yeah. when you can't travel back um, now we were in a very fortunate situation that um, uh, so Luca obviously was very young he didn't have to go to school Justin was he had taken a break from work so he was he didn't have to go back to a job to 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 work straight away um, so we um, well I kind of settled into my hospital room and uh, Justin managed to find a rent a house and found a little Montessori for Luca to go to and um, it must have been so difficult for you to just hand over this little toddler you to your husband and go you go for it and, well, the know. funny thing was Luca was going to a Montessori in the UK but I think two or three mornings a week for a couple of hours and I think probably Justin had always felt that this wasn't really necessary because obviously I was at home and I could look after him. And I remember after two days in Spain, he looked at me and he said, I now understand why Luca goes to Montessori. Because <laughs> he'd now had him for 24 hours on his own. Um, so, but funnily also, it was, it was the very first, the only ever time that we'd left keys of our house in the UK with neighbors. We'd never done that before. Um, but then it got to where we, we rang the neighbors and we said, listen, you need to go into the house and you need to, you know, get her go into the office. You need to give us login details for bank accounts because there were no there was no iPhone at that time. You know, there was there was Internet. Online banking had just just started, but you were doing this on a computer and you needed login details and all that. It was all a little bit more complicated. And then you've flown with hand luggage. You have no clothes. You have not much yeah. with you. So it was all a bit of a um, bit of a shock. Um, so we kind of very quickly then established a little routine where Justin and Luca would come and see me every day in the hospital. My mom came over as well within two days. And um, then a week later, um, I suddenly started bleeding very heavily and um, called the doctors. They did the ultrasound and within minutes, noticed that um, the baby at that stage, we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or girl, was very heavily compromised and needed to be born immediately. And um, so he was born within the space of 45 minutes by emergency caesarean. He had actually stopped breathing and he was resuscitated. So we reckon he was probably um, without oxygen for a good 10 to 15 minutes, which is crucial. Mm. Um, he didn't actually, the doctors didn't think he was going to survive the first 24 hours because he thought, they thought that the damage was way too big. And did you? I didn't, I didn't actually know. To be honest, I was in a state of shock. Um, mm. 
I was literally from my um, hospital room wheeled down into the operating theatre and the anaesthetist literally came into the lift to give me the epidural. This was all happening so quickly. Um, and to the extent that actually when he was born, he, so he was whisked away immediately. Uh, I didn't hear him crying anything. I had no, I had no idea what was going on. And then suddenly it was quiet in the room. And then I, I said to the, 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 the nurses, I said, was it a boy or a girl? <laughs> and they looked at each other and they just said, oh, it was a girl. But the thing is, it was such an emergency that they hadn't even, nobody had paid attention to that. Right. It wasn't about that. It, it was, was about, about life saving this life, the life of this little yeah. baby. And I thought, oh, okay, it's a little girl, okay. And then they wheeled me into, a, a, um, I was brought into a recovery room where I, I went into quite a, a severe state of shock because this had happened so yeah. abruptly. And half an hour later, the doctor came back running in and she said, I'm so sorry I made a mistake, it's a boy. And so, okay, great, okay, so it's a boy. And, um, but I, she didn't say, nobody said anything else about his condition. Now, I do remember that uh, about an hour later, there was obviously another baby being born, and I heard the baby cry, and I suddenly realized that I hadn't heard my baby cry, and I thought, well, that wasn't quite the way mm. it was supposed to be. And so I was in the, in the recovery room for about four hours, I think. And Were then you I, on your own? Yes. Yes, mm. I actually thought, poor Justin, who didn't speak a word of Spanish, I thought, he's never going to find me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was on my own, but to be, to be honest, um, I was kind of half asleep, half awake. I, there were nurses in the rooms, but I wasn't really in a state to be with anybody at that stage. I was just um, recovering from the shock, the physical shock that had yeah. happened to my, to my body at that stage. And this baby being ripped out so quickly in the, during the cesarean. And then, so he was born at two o'clock, uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, and then by six o'clock I was brought up to the um, to my room, and within ten minutes Justin had found me. He walked in, and he immediately told me that uh, the situation wasn't very good. Now he didn't, I think at that stage he kind of wanted to protect me. He didn't want to tell me too much, but I said to him, "Listen, you know we're in this together. You have to tell me what's going on." So he said, "It's a boy, and um, but he's not very healthy." he's not very well and he's probably not going to survive the night and he said I've asked the pediatrician that she comes to see us so she can explain to you as well so she came in and she basically said the same she said okay he's stable at the moment um, but we don't really know how this is going to develop over the next 24 hours because the damage has been so well the, the, he has he was compromised so much so we're just going to have to wait and see and so it was just a case then of waiting. So the, the hospital in, in, in Malaga is, is you have, um, there's a building at the, on the ground floor and then you have two towers and one is the maternity hospital and one is the pediatric hospital. So that's, so I was now still in the maternity ward and Joshua had been taken to the intensive care unit of the pediatric ward. Uh, and I wasn't actually allowed to see him until the third day because I wasn't allowed to get up. And I, I asked, I think after on the second day, I said, I just want to see my baby. And we, we'd found a wheelchair and we said, can, you know, just, can I just bring my wife over to the other building? And they said, no, 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 you have to wait. You know, you're not stable enough to, to get up. And again, that was a it time... It must have been torture. It, it was because there were lots of mothers with newborn babies on the same floor. And you know, it was a big hospital. And, and I have to say, I mean... We ended up staying in Spain for a whole, whole year and the Spanish were lovely people and especially in the hospital, you know, afterwards when we were in the, in the intensive care unit, they couldn't have been nicer. But 
this stage it was very difficult because a they spoke very little English and you would suddenly have a nurse come bursting into the room saying oh where's the baby because whatever the baby had to be weighed and I would say the baby's not here the baby's in the intensive care unit and they would go oh, just shrug their shoulders and walk out again so that was that was a really hard time and then the other thing the physical side comes in that you know the milk comes into your breast but you don't have a baby to 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 give the milk to and um it's very painful it's incredibly painful and the hormones crash as well so your mood it's, goes arse ways yes and oh. and they had this room in the uh, you actually had to go into the pediatric uh, the near the intensive care unit where they had this room with um um, milk, what do you call them again? Pumps. Milk, the pumps, but they were, these were quite big industrial type ones and I had no idea how they would function but you know when, you're, when you've just given birth and the milk comes in you have to go and pump, it could be like one o'clock in the morning because it's, it becomes so painful and I remember one night then I was, I went into that room and I couldn't figure out how this machine worked and the, the intensive care unit was just across and I just stood there and I was I burst into tears and I said, can somebody just please help me? And this nurse appears and she was just like an angel that suddenly appeared because she was half Canadian and half Spanish. So she spoke fluent English and I thought, where have you been all this week? <laughs> you could have helped me so much. The small things become it's, so vital and important. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like you said, this first week after you've given birth, the hormones are all over the place. Your body is all over the place. You know, you're still kind of feel half pregnant and but you're not anymore so it's a really difficult time so then to find yourself in this hospital environment is is not mm. easy so um, I was then I was discharged from the hospital within four or five days I did get to see Joshua on day three then which was lovely and he was tiny he was he weighed 900 grams when he was born so he was born at 27 weeks and three days, 900 grams, and I mean, literally his head fitted into the palm of my hand. And um, so he had survived the first. You weren't able to hold him though? No, you, no. You know? So in the first, I'm, not sure, I'm trying to remember the first, I think the first four weeks he was in a closed incubator. So you could put your hands in, but they had what they called kangaroo care where now at that stage also they were very um, limited visiting hours in the intensive care unit so they had an hour between one and two and then another hour between six and seven I think for so parents for parents that wow. was the only time that you were allowed to come in because you know, in, in an intensive a neonatal intensive care unit is a very intense environment yeah. it's not uh, an environment it's not a nice environment um, and the, the nurses and the doctors are doing an incredible job saving babies' lives on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, but they, so you had something that that was called kangaroo care, where you could then you could then sit with your baby, and this could be outside of the um, visiting hours, and you would sit with your baby, and sorry, and they would take the baby out of the uh, the incubator and just lay it on your bare chest, so you had the skin to skin contact and you would just sit there for an hour or an hour and a half and then they would put the baby back into the incubator. So if you're, <coughs> excuse me, if you were willing to do that, yeah. you were allowed to go Oh, they in. were definitely yeah. encouraging that and they, I remember they said to us at the time that they could always see his values on the monitor were improving every time you were doing that. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, it's, even for, the, for these babies, it's a very stressful environment because it's noisy, it's, it's bright, you know, it's not the natural environment of the womb that they would normally have at that, mm. at that stage. 
Um, so I was discharged and from the hospital after four or five days, I think. And, and then it just became a routine of every day going to see Joshua in the hospital. Was that hard for you to be discharged and leave him behind? Um, I mean, it was, it was nice to be out of the hospital. It was very nice to be with Justin and with Luca again and to be you know, not in the hospital environment anymore. Um, but yes, so then once we'd established then this routine that we would go and see him every day during the visiting hours and, and I was pumping milk all the time. I had way more milk because he was tiny. He didn't need that much, but I had way more. Um, were they able to tube feed him with your milk? Yes, oh, yes. Wonderful. They were yeah. encouraging that a lot mm. um, because they were saying that it was so much better um, to have the, uh, the breast milk. But it was very hard at times. I remember there was a day when I was, I think we were having dinner at home and I suddenly, and I stood at the sink and I suddenly had this realization thinking, my God, I'm here in my kitchen and my newborn, my baby is lying in this incubator in this cold hospital environment. But you also, you have to be able to accept that you cannot be there 24 hours because you have to get out of the hospital yourself. You, you have dismantle to dismantle if you stayed there. Exactly. The and you, you have to take time for your family. You have to take time for your other child or children if you have them. It was very important. See, Luca was so important to being with me all the time before that. And then now suddenly we were in Spain and there were many times when, when, Luca, uh, when Justin and I were in the hospital. Where, so suddenly he had to get used to the fact that we weren't constantly there for him all the time now there was something else going on and he was too young to understand really what was going on he thought at that stage it was normal that newborn babies stayed in hospital until the doctor tells the parents it's okay that the baby can come home um, so you have to take the time for your for your relationship for your other child and you have to take the time for yourself you have to process what is actually mm -hmm. happening and what had happened to us at that stage was that we had gone on holidays for a week we hadn't gone, gone back home um, we'd had a baby that was in the neonatal intensive care unit who was stable now. Um, so at this point you were told there is a chance he'll survive? We were told that he showed signs that he was fine, that so, so they had done um, several scans on his brain and that everything actually looked fine at that stage. Um, but they were very cautious, they always said at a later stage there can always be problems, which we cannot foresee now. We cannot. We don't know what that could be. Mm. And I remember one of the doctors said to me, you know, it could be that he can't move his arm properly. Or that. And I thought, oh, that's okay. You know, we can live with that. <laughs> um, we can do difficult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was very hard to foresee what would actually happen. But they said, now he's stable. Um, but in order to leave the hospital, he had to have a certain weight and he had to be able to breathe uh, independently and also swallow independently. And those were the two challenges for Joshua. So that, uh, first of all, he was tube fed and he was struggling to come off the tube because what transpired later on was that his brain couldn't compute the swallowing. So if you were trying to put milk into his mouth, he would inhale it into his lungs. He couldn't mm. swallow. So that was the one problem. And also the problem was that he remained oxygen dependent for a long time. So most babies will come off the oxygen at some point in the first couple of weeks then, or, the, or pretty much premature. Develop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but for his lungs just didn't develop enough. Um, so not only was he, uh, the problem was that he could, you could 
so he was on oxygen you can bring the air in but he wasn't able also to exhale enough of the what you you know the, when you exhale it's an it's a very important it's not only the inhaling that's important the exhaling is just as important and he couldn't do that um, so he remained uh, tube fed and oxygen dependent for the rest of his life mm. um, how did your relationship develop with this little guy over the months it's um yeah, it's a really tricky one because I don't really know how to describe this, but yeah, no, I mean, you, you just want him home. You just want, you know, you want to have a normal family life, normal as much as that's possible, mm. even though he's, you know, he's tube fed and he's oxygen dependent, but you just so desperately want to get out of mm. the hospital. And, and uh, how, how was attachment for you? Because I could imagine you know you love your child I mean you love them from the minute they're conceived yeah. and particularly when you see them so vulnerable and compromised and yet there's probably part of you that's saying he may not make it this may not be okay I need to protect myself did that thought come into your head at all no to mm. be honest that never um, came I think we always had we always thought we're going to be okay yeah we always had this thought we're going to be okay and we're going to make this work Justin said that as well. He said you just focused on the hope. Yeah, there's yes. a chance he yeah. might be okay. Yeah, so. I mean, there's. I thought this afterwards, after um, Josh had passed away, that you know, there's a, it's a very fine line between hope and naivety. You know, you, know, you look back and you think, you know, were we naive to think that he was ever going to make it? But that's mm. that's what hope is. Mm. And if you don't have that, then you know, you have to have hope. And um, I think it's it's important for people listening because sometimes. You hear people say, "Well, they knew he was sick, or he was." It doesn't make a difference no. to your grief. It's it your child. Yes. You adore them, and you're devastated when yes. they're not okay. Yeah, and you just yeah. you just think whatever challenge happens, you know, we'll we'll figure this out. Um, and then people say, this, "Oh, you're you're so strong," but you just you just do it because you're thrown into the situation. Yeah. And, no and choice. Exactly, you have no yeah. choice. And I think at that stage already. Just, Justin and I were very lucky because we had an incredibly good relationship because it was, it was, there were days when it was so difficult to go to the hospital. There were days, there was, so like I said, Joshua was 27 plus three, 27 weeks and three days when he was born. I remember there was a little girl, she was born at 23 weeks. She was even smaller and she left the hospital before him and she was fine from, well, she was fine from what I could see and I thought, we're never going to get out of here. And I remember on the day when he was five months old and he was still in the neonatal, um, uh, the intensive care unit, and I thought, we're never going to get out of here. And I was devastated that day. I actually I remember going to the hospital, going into the, the intensive care unit, and I just turned around and I went home, and I, I think I cried for the rest of the day because I thought, this is never going to improve. Because the thing, what had it, what it transpired by then was that he, um, he definitely had neurological problems. Um, or issues so he was um, never making eye contact when you looked at him his face was always his face was always kind of moving from left to right and I mean even the doctors knew but nobody said there's something wrong but everybody knew that there was something just not quite right with and him when you knew. we knew as well and yeah. um, so there was that and then obviously there was the tube feeding and then there was the oxygen and eventually then at five and a half months um the doctor said listen he needs to be out of the hospital environment and many times also when uh, 
premature babies, once they leave the hospital environment, they improve a lot because once they get into the normal family environment, and that's the normal environment that the baby, where the baby should grow up, and once they come home, they improve a lot and you know, they have the normal stimulation that, that, the, ba that the baby should have. So the, the, the hospital in Malaga, so at that stage, we had decided we were going to stay in Spain because there were also, there are very small windows of opportunities when you can transport a baby that's in the neonatal unit um, because you can't just take him out there and bring him on a plane and fly home. He has to be on an air ambulance and there are very small windows when you can do that because he was getting infections in the hospitals and he was on antibiotics and he had blood transfusions. There was so much going on um, that you couldn't just at any point say, well, we're going to fly back to the UK. So, and the hospital was really, was very good. The neonatal unit was fantastic. And we, we, we didn't actually know, you never know what the impact would be if you then go back to your country. You know, I'd say we, if we'd gone back to the UK, he would have been admitted to a hospital there. That would have been a major uh, impact on, on uh, probably on his, on his condition because just, just the whole change in, 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 in uh, circumstances. So we decided we were staying in Spain and um, at five and a half months then the, the, we'd moved house actually, that's another thing, in those five and a half months we moved house I think five times. Um, oh my god. <laughs> yes. Because each time you were expecting it's just going to be a short term let, everything there will was work that, out. There was that and then at first we were about a 45 minutes drive from the hospital but that was more because we'd found a really nice um, Montessori for Luca in that town. So we thought, okay, at least Luca is taken care of. He's got you know, a nice, stable environment. Uh, Justin's niece, who lives in Spain, had come, she had come to stay with us for a month. So she was kind of looking at helping us looking after Luca. We were very fortunate at the time that Justin's parents, they came out, my mom came out. So we always had people coming out and spending time with us, which great. was really nice, yeah. a great family support. Um, but then the, the, the hospital said, okay, we have this system, it's called hospitalization at home. It's for children that don't need to be in a permanent hospital environment anymore, but they still need to be under medical supervision. But you have to live within Malaga. So we found, uh, um, first we found, actually by complete coincidence, we found an apartment that was right opposite the hospital. It was fantastic, obviously, because it was literally walking distance. It was very hot. This was summer then, 2010. It was. I don't know, 35, 40 degrees in Malaga, it was very hot. But at least we were there, we had no air conditioning, but they thought at least we're, we're by the hospital, we're great. But this was obviously not going to be a permanent accommodation for us. But then we found a really nice house just outside of Malaga. And we said, okay, we can bring Joshua home. And uh, so we brought him home and then the, the nurse would ring me every day. And we were trained then in how to put in feeding tubes. We were trained in, um, just look after him and he had to take temperature every day and, and take take note of all this. Obviously we had a small oxygen tank at home and every time we went out this wasn't just putting your baby in the pram and going out. You had an oxygen tank with you, you had a machine that you could use to clear his, his airways if it was necessary. There was a whole battery Nursing of things 101. that yeah. he had to bring with you but I was always determined I was going to make this work. I was going to you know at least once a week going out for a walk with Luca and with Joshua. This was going to you know, no matter how challenged, that. and I managed. And it was really important yeah. to get these moments in where I managed to get both or all three of us out of the house. Um, how important we was normal for you to have just a walk down the street? That was that was so important because yeah. nothing was normal at that stage because mm. it was 
in a way our house was it was chaos we, at that stage we had Justin had flown back to the UK and we decided to rent our house in the UK house so he packed everything up brought it to Spain um, but you have no time to really unpack the boxes I mean it was chaos in a way yeah. but but we that's why these little moments of normal were so important yeah. um, but yeah actually I just remember at the one point I wanted to say before that um, so in all this time when when we had these daily hospital visits um, I had bad days Justin had bad days but we we made a deal that well we, we realized it was really important that we'd never have a bad bad day both of us together so when one of us had a bad day the other one would say come on we'll go down there was a little tapas restaurant opposite the, the, the hospital would say come on we'll go over there we'll have some lunch we'll have a beer or we would we'll just get out of here for an hour and you know we have a little pep talk and then we'd go back in but we never had a bad day together, both of us. That was really important. We know one of us mm -hmm. always needed to kind of hold the other one up and we managed to make that work for the entire year. That and was just what's flashing through my mind is you sitting in London <laughs> over a glass of wine saying, nah, he's not for me. I know. <laughs> if you had had any clue I know. what you would go through together yeah. and how much you would show up for each other. Yeah. And this was it's incredible, really. It's, and, and then, you know, Later on, as when we then got to the stage where where um, so Joshua was getting he was getting infections, chest infections, and regularly on a monthly basis. Um, and I remember he had one in in September. Then so about a month after he'd come out of hospital, and we were back in hospital, and and so it was bronchiolitis. And and I remember the doctor saying to me something like, well, you know, "If he gets this in the summer, what is he going to be like in the winter?" Now. And it's true, you know, if he, but his, mm. his, his lungs were so compromised that he was getting this when it was 30 degrees outside and when, you know, most, mostly babies would get this in the winter. Um, and then it got to uh, December and uh, just before Christmas 2010 and I could, because I was, you know, when you're with your baby every single day, you know, like, it's the mother's instinct, you know, when maybe the temperature is just half a degree up or it's a degree up and you just, something isn't entirely right. And I just, I could feel that there was another infection coming. But we'd also, at that stage, I mean, in the hospital, they obviously knew us because we were there all the time and they knew Joshua and they knew mm -hmm. his whole back history. And um, we, knew, uh, we knew that if we're going, if he has another a chest infection, if we're going to hospital, back, back into hospital, there was no wonder drug they could give him to make him better. It was always just a case of, well, well, you know, he can be here under observation. And if, you know, uh, we'll wait for a couple of days and then he can go back home. And we, so we knew that, and obviously every hospital stay brings in risk of bacteria and yeah. infection. Um, so we waited quite a long time then and, and before Christmas until we eventually I said listen we, we, we also had this monitor that was monitoring his blood oxygen level so we could with that as well we could see if the values were going too low and it got to the stage I think it was 23rd of, of December or, or yeah, it was the day before Christmas Eve and I said to oh, it was Christmas Eve and I said to Justin we need to go to the hospital this is just beyond my capabilities now of, of you know I'm not a doctor and, and yeah. we need to go back and we went so we went on Christmas Eve and um, he um, he became um, increasingly worse during the the afternoon uh, and eventually then in the late afternoon early evening he was admitted back into the intensive care unit um, because he had pneumonia and he wasn't getting any better 
And did you feel at this point, this is just another blip that we'll get through? Or did you know that this one was more serious? No, I felt this was another blip. This was another chest infection that he was going through. I still, we still had hope. And, you know, we were still, we felt kind of with the, with, together with the doctors, you know, we're a team, we're, we're going to do this together. We're going to get through this. And uh, so Christmas Eve, so Luca was, I think three at the time, you know, when Christmas becomes important, when, when they become more aware of what Christmas is. And uh, Joshua was then admitted to the intensive care unit and the doctor said, listen, you can just go home now because we'll, we'll take care from this stage, you know, and, and, and we'll call you and this is the number, you're gonna ring us tomorrow morning, you know, and we'll tell you that, or otherwise if there's anything, we'll give you a call. So we went home, did the normal, you know, the Christmas thing with Luca and um, got up the next morning. I rang the hospital and I said, yeah, yeah, everything is fine. Everything's good. You know, he's stable. Now he was on a, uh, he was on a ventilator now again. So he was, um, he was asleep. Uh, it was like a, it's like an induced coma. You have to be unconscious in order to be able to, to be on the, the ventilator. And he, but he said, they said, everything's fine. So this was at about 7.30 on Christmas day and um, we did the Christmas presence with Luca and then they rang me again at 10.30 and they just said, the doctors need you to come to the hospital immediately. But they don't tell you anything else. So this could be, your baby could be dead or whatever. They don't tell you anything on the phone. They just say, you have to come immediately. And so we got dressed, jumped in the car and... Um, what was going through your mind? We had no idea what was going to, what was going to wait us when we get mm. there. And we, we actually said to each other in the car then, um, we said, no matter what happens today, Christmas is always going to be Christmas for us. This is important. Um, and we're always going to be together and Christmas is always Christmas. And so we got to the hospital and we actually had to wait quite a while. So what had happened was that his, um, his condition had deteriorated, deteriorated so much. Um, so actually, no, sorry, he wasn't on the ventilator, but he had to be intubated again. And it's a very dangerous procedure. And it's actually, so the doctors were ringing us because they had to tell us that they were going to intubate him. Once he's intubated and he's on the ventilator, then he's stable. But they have to tell you to, that they're going to do this procedure. Because and get your permission. Get your, well, yeah. the, at that stage, it's just to, to let you know that this is going to be happening mm -hmm. um, because it could potentially go wrong. Now, Joshua had actually, I think this was about the fifth time in his life that he was intubated. Now, this is a horrible procedure. Um, you don't want anybody to go through it, but obviously it's life-saving. Um, but by the time we got to the hospital, he was stable. Um, now this was Christmas day, and it wasn't his normal medical team that was there. This is, it's, a, it's quite an important point. Um, so they said, okay, he's stable now, you know, we're, we're, he's probably going to have to be on the ventilator for four or five days, and then hopefully the, the quicker he can come off, the better, because you don't want them to be uh, on it for too long and, and then the next day um, so what's called boxing uh, Stephen's day boxing day um, then I think his normal team they were back in and then they came to us and they said listen the team that was here over Christmas they didn't know Joshua's back history they didn't know his full history if they'd known they wouldn't have intubated him and if this happens again we're not going to intubate him again so this is the end of the road. And I was absolutely, I was gobsmacked. I was devastated because I, like I said before, I thought we were, you know, we were in this together. We were going to fight through this together. And I felt, I felt at that stage completely let down by the doctors. Now, you know, when you think through it, then the next couple of days, you think, okay, 
you know, maybe we were lucky that we'd actually gotten to the stage. You know, if you'd been in a different country, maybe they wouldn't even have done this. Maybe they would have stopped it much earlier on. Um, but they, so they said to us, you know, if this happens again, we're not going to intubate him. We're not going to um, do this this procedure again because it's the quality of his life is just not good enough, and it's not it's not worth the impact. Um, and so, you know, this was a shock for us because we suddenly we were faced with a completely different diagnosis here. That we were suddenly faced with, mm. we knew he was going to have another one of these episodes. You know, he'd had them every month. So this was just a case of when this is going to happen again and this is going and to And this be. had become your normal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Looking at it with glasses of hope on. Yeah. Um, and I remember actually, um, it was about a month, oh no, actually that day on the on Christmas Eve when he was admitted to the um, intensive care unit, we, we were still in the waiting room or the kind of A&E room and we'd already had a conversation before with the doctors that um, um, they weren't going to do any heavy interventions on him. And these kind of conversations had become so normal to us. And I remember having this conversation with the doctor there and there was another parent in the room he uh, father sat, uh, sitting there with his um, I think his daughter and he looked at me with these big eyes because he obviously couldn't believe what kind of conversations we were having there and then I realized you know this has come this has become completely normal yeah for me now and you were living on a life death yeah. edge yeah yeah um so we were there so we were faced with this new uh, this new situation then and um Joshua does released from what he came eventually after I think about eight or nine days he came off the ventilator and um, so I'm, I'm not a see I'm not a doctor so I'm just explaining this in kind of amateur terms but they they're on special medications to so that you stay in this uh, induced coma but then when you come off this medication it's like a it's like a withdrawal okay. it's like you go it's like going cold turkey off drugs and when you see your baby going through that, and we'd seen this two or three times, it's horrendous because they basically don't sleep for 24 hours. And they're mm. just, he was, I was in the, in the normal ward then, and I was, I was in a chair um, beside his bed, and I was trying to get some sleep during the night, and he was literally just lying in the bed the whole night awake. And you think, what on earth am I doing to my child? Mm. It's, you, you mm. think about all these, these medications that he'd been on, all the procedures he'd been through, and you think, what am I doing to him? You know, all the, the, mm. the, the, the side effects, and it's the worst thing you can do when you're in the middle of the night, you start Googling the medication that you know your, your baby is on, and, and you read about all the side effects. Don't ever do that because it just destroys you. Um, but then I think the realization kind of hit in that, you know, this, this is probably the right thing. This is it's as hard as it is, but you have to understand that sometimes you have to let him go. Yeah. So we had um, many conversations then during those days, Justin and I, between us and also with probably not too many people. Um, I think family kind of, they were, they were there for us, but obviously nobody would come up to you and say, well, I think you should do this or you should do that because you have to, as parents, you have to make that decision it's yourself. Such a delicate, delicate, delicate area. Exactly. Um, interestingly, the, the, the nurse who I previously mentioned, who was half Canadian, half Spanish, we'd, we'd uh, established quite a good um, friendship with her and she came to see us one day in the hospital and she started chatting to us and, and um, 
just it was certain people came to talk to us just to kind of help us a little bit with our decision making. Um, but yeah, in the end of the day, we had to accept that it was it was the, the, the best thing to let him go because this, these episodes were always going to come back. There was what for the foreseeable future they were going to happen. Every month he was going to be back in hospital. You know, in terms of his physical development, he was nearly one. He um, couldn't sit up. Uh, was normally a baby by six months. You know, you'd be sitting up. He still couldn't swallow. He still couldn't. Um, he was still oxygen dependent. Um, I had at that stage, at that stage, started um, some kind of central um, physiotherapy with him in Malaga once a week. Um, but it was a very difficult, difficult time. Um, and so he was then, he came out of hospital then mm. after 10 days, so beginning of January, and then we had no idea how, what was going to happen, how, how you know, how, what's this process, how long is it? Would it be a week, it? would it be a month? Yeah. Exactly. No, n yeah. nobody can, can tell you. And, and um, So was it a question of we're just going to wait till another episode happens, we're going to care for him as normal, Yeah. but if and when another episode happens, that will be it for Joshua. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And we'd also agreed at that stage with the um, with the hospital that we were going to stay at home. No matter what happens, we were not going back into hospital because, we, because we'd spent so much time in the hospital. And even though they knew us and they knew his his back his history, it was always every time you came back in, you still felt you needed to explain everything, and it was draining. It was so exhausting every time being back in, in the hospital, even for us or for us. As, as parents as well and we thought you know we've spent so much time in the hospital we're now staying at home in the house that we were renting and um, the the, uh, the medical team agreed eventually agreed to that and um, he was then um, on a morphine patch he was given we were giving him a, a morphine patch and um, it took another two weeks then and he'd had kind of an episode over 24 hours um, it was actually it was one evening where suddenly so he was still attached to the um, at that stage he wasn't on in, on on the oxygen anymore um, but he was still we still had him attached to the um, blood um, oxygen level to the monitor so we could see kind of how the values were were developing and one evening Friday evening over an hour he had it was like minor strokes or, or as if his heart suddenly stopped this was a period maybe of, of maybe half an hour and it kind of went on and off and on and off and on and off and we, we really had no clue really what was going on but we um, kind of thought okay this is not great um, and this was at about 7.30 in the evening and then we went to bed quite soon after that so Joshua always said his cot was beside our bed and that night we took him into the, the bed with us and he slept in our bed between Justin and myself. And then the next morning we were taking turns, kind of each of us, either one of us was with him, with him in the bed and then the other one, obviously we still had Luca also who was in the house and at that stage also um, Justin's parents were with us. And so on the Saturday morning then for about an hour and a half or two hours, Justin was in the bed upstairs with Joshua and then I came upstairs and we were switching over and we just had a little chat and we actually changed, we had to change the, the patch as well on, on um, the, the, the morphine patch. And then I lay down in the bed with Joshua and 15 minutes later he took his last breath and that was it. And it was actually, 
it was a beautiful moment because it was mm. very peaceful mm. and um, I was so glad that we that we were not in hospital that yeah. it was just us and we were this was on our terms now what was what was happening in the next hours and it was just Justin and myself in 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 the room and um, no machi machines between you no and your machines baby. nobody coming in and telling yeah. you you know I have to do this or whatever the baby has to be taken away this was just us it was beautiful mm. um, it was uh, it was very surprising actually because for some reason at the, right at that moment we didn't expect it to happen and it was very quick um, but there was no there was no struggle on on uh, from Joshua and then. You knew he was declining and was yes probably going yes to his die. his his breathing was quite um, heavy then um, I don't know if we really knew you know still we didn't know if this was going to be another day or two days or and then suddenly it was literally a, a case a of three surreal. seconds and it is very surreal yeah. really and I think we were probably in the room with him for for half an hour and then. Justin went downstairs to, to tell his parents and um, he said, no, I'm just going to bring you down to the village with Luca just so you can, you know, we can get Luca out of the house. We, we hadn't really told Luca at that stage what was happening with Joshua because he was, he was too young to understand, you know, when children, when they're young and they're, they're developing their vocabulary, the word death didn't exist in Lucas' vocabulary. He didn't know what that meant, that somebody dies and, and, and goes and never comes back. And um, so Justin brought his parents and Luca down to the, the village and then came back and... And, in, and you stayed at home with Joshua? I stayed at home with Joshua and it was mm. a beautiful mo uh, moment and I, 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 I washed him and I, I dressed him. But mm. it, was, it was very surreal because I felt as if he was sleeping. So you took all the tubes out for the yeah. first time yeah. ever. I you saw your baby out. without. Well, we, yeah. So the 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 uh, the oxygen tube we had already taken out, but yeah, the 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 feeding tube. Now I had changed that every day. So there were there were moments before when I had seen them without the the uh, the space had been without the tubes for for brief moments. Yeah, but I took mm. I took everything out and and I still <laughs> now this is quite surreal, but I thought. I have to put a nappy on him. I can't. <laughs> it feels very surreal yeah. that you're dressing your baby without a nappy. Obviously, he didn't need a nappy anymore. But I thought I have to put a nappy on him. Yeah. Um, and I dressed him, and I chose kind of the last um, the, the the little suit that he was going so to be. So you were home alone. Doing yeah, this. for about an hour. And I think yeah. Justin was quite worried about leaving me alone. But there was no, there was no reason to be worried. I mm. I don't know. I, for me, it was a very. It was a very primal moment, mm. I suppose, um, but I don't think I had really understood that this was the last time. And a primal moment that you wouldn't have got probably in the hospital. No, no, exactly, yeah. and it was so important that mm. we had that at home. But yeah, I don't, I don't really think that it, it kind of got through my head that you know this is the last time that I'm doing this. Um, so Justin came back then and we, we'd spoken in the days before because we knew that obviously at some stage this was going to happen. We'd spoken to a um, funeral um, company in, in the area and they came then an hour later and picked Joshua up and, um, and then we spent the day with the rest of the day with Justin's parents and with, with uh, Luca and it was literally just the five of us and, and and it was actually, it was all focused just on Luca then, yeah. on that day. 
you know it's literally where you you get down and you just play with the lego and you do all the silly things because there's nothing else to worry about at that stage yeah and we um so we had in actually previously before christmas we had we'd realized that spain wasn't the place to stay well i had realized i'd had a big breakdown saying i can't actually stay here because i can't make any friends here nobody can drop in even just for a cup of tea because that was the kind of normal that i needed and i couldn't have that down there in spain i couldn't make any friends i couldn't help luca make friends because we had this manic life with this mm -hmm. baby that constantly needed to be back in hospital and i thought i can't actually stay here in spain i need to go somewhere else so we said okay if we go back to the UK, there's no family there either. My family's in Germany, Justin's family's in Ireland. And like I said before, in the, the area in the UK that we moved to, we were relatively new to that area, so we hadn't established deep mm -hmm. friendships. So we thought, okay, so Germany was a difficult, would have been a difficult choice because Justin doesn't speak German. So for him then eventually, obviously, he would have to go back to work. I guess the, you, you learned the hard way the importance of language and communication Yes. in terms yeah. of community and belonging and yeah. friendships and connection. Now, um, my, my Spanish had obviously come on quite a bit in that year. Mm. Yeah. That's what you know, happens because you don't really have a choice, you know, from going to, from, from when you're coming from the stage where you can just about order a coffee or a beer and then you go to the stage of where you have conversations with a neurologist about the state of the brain of your child you know it's um it's quite a progress yeah. but still you could we could force to learn forced to, to understand exactly. as well but we couldn't develop we couldn't have a social life because it was also really hard for other people to understand what we were going through because like i said it was so mental constantly being in hospital and i we'd met a couple there a couple there at the beginning and i think they just looked at us at some stage and thinking what kind of life do they uh, yeah, it, it, it was really difficult it's for other people to understand. It's almost beyond fiction. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember we had um, in the first couple of months. Actually, that was just after Joshua was born, and we bought a car then. And um, Justin and I, we both had this conversation that when we were driving there, we were constantly in a state of thinking, "I'm going to crash this car. I'm going to crash this car." You're constant in this constant were state of just, stress. Yeah. Um, and this went on for a whole year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, back to you in London, signing up to the dating app. Maybe I'll just focus <laughs> on my career and the journey yeah. that you were forced through yeah. over a very short period of time. Yeah. Did it change you? Uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask other people that. <laughs> um, of course, the, 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 of course, it changes you in a way. I always say, uh, you know, I always remember the day that my first child was born and the day that my second child died did it, mm. yeah. you'll never forget those days yeah. um, so we then we decided that we would come to Ireland and we um, moved to Ireland then in March 2011 so that was so Joshua passed away at the end of January and we moved here at the beginning of March so six weeks after Joshua died we we arrived in Ireland and um, Lived in Enniscary first, and uh, what was that like for you, move, leaving Spain, where all your memories of Joshua, yeah. from the time from birth to death, they were all in Spain. Yeah, it was. Um, we actually we bought a little, uh, we bought an apartment in Spain because we thought we want to have something that we can go back. We, we'd obviously, you know, Spain had that stage, that stage had become very important to us because we'd spent 
so much time there and with the with the Spanish people uh, and we bought a small apartment not in Malaga but outside a kind of 45 minutes um, towards the kind of Puerto Banus area um, because we wanted to have a base there we wanted to be able to come back that was really really important and um, I still love Malaga I think Malaga is the most one of the most beautiful cities that I've ever been to and um, uh, obviously it has a very strong significance in our life um, and then it was I remember it was quite a surreal moment being on that flight when we left Spain because I remember thinking this is nearly a year to the day that we came to Spain to just stay for a week yeah. and now we're leaving a year later um, very surreal and then coming to Ireland and suddenly suddenly we had normality I suddenly had we had so much time because there wasn't this frantic life that we'd led for the last last 12 months um, and Luca started in school and um, then we got our first dog Sanchez our golden retriever and I started walking in the kind of the Wicklow mountains with with Sanchez and this wasn't a it wasn't a conscious decision as in I need to get into nature it was it was there was probably there was definitely a need I needed to be alone I didn't feel the I didn't really want to socialize that much I still mm. I was still processing everything that had happened in these 12 months yeah. before this suddenly I found myself living in a country in a different country yeah. I, I this actually came a few months later this realization that hang on a second we went on a holiday for a week we never came back into our house we never even came back into the same country I now suddenly live in Ireland how did this happen yeah and it's like, you know, in that year, people might think, oh, you get you've time to get used to it because you were there for a year. But actually, you're really just hopping from trauma to trauma. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah. system doesn't have any chance just to no. relax, no. settle, process, because the next thing would happen yeah. before before you your system could do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, the whole first year then here was really just a case of actually thinking okay let's just slow down and think what about the what, hell has just happened. what the hell has just happened exactly yeah. and um, we had a moment well I, I had a moment then I think it was in October that same year where we went back to the UK for a weekend to um, to have a look at our house there because suddenly thought I don't actually know if I want to live here maybe I want to go back to the UK um, so we went back and, and then I thought no 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 actually Ireland is really nice and and, and I have to say I loved living in Enniscary I love the Wicklow Mountains and still now, when I whenever I drive over that area, it's 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 a really special place for me. Because you feel a connection to Joshua yeah. there. It's it's kind of it's a place where I healed. I think with um, yeah. you know just walking, and like I said, I didn't walk. Uh, this wasn't a conscious decision, but Justin made that comment. Um, I think it was last year. I think he was actually on. Uh, he was interviewed somewhere, and he said, "Oh, Beatrice went into nature," and and then I actually realized, yeah, you you're right. That's what I did. I went. Yeah. Um, and just walked every week, every day. Obviously, every day the dog, the dog needed to be out. But every week, I would go on a different trail in the Wicklow Mountains and be out there for a couple of hours. And um, started listening to podcasts actually at that time. You said there, Beatrice, <laughs> that's where I healed. Yeah. Do you think you heal from grief? Uh, no, you never fully heal. Um, there is friend of ours, a lady that we knew at the time of um, Joshua's funeral, she sent us a really a lovely letter and she said in her in her opening she had recently lost a parent and she had written the opening line was 
they say that time time heals but it's the, it's the space between now and then that is so difficult to understand and it's a very it's a very good line because mm. yes time and I can say that now because this is now in that Joshua died in 2011 and we're now 2019 so it's eight years things will get better you know if mm. you're at a stage where this is very recent to you if, if the pain is still very raw it will get better it mm. does take a long time it can take years it will never fully go away it will always mm. be part of you and but it will get better so you mm. you this the, the the scar the cut will always be there the the scar tissue will always be there it will heal in a bit but mm. it will always it will always stay with you mm. there's no it's part are of there you. moments in life now like when you see an eight-year-old for example or you know kids that sh that would be joshua's mm. or kids who are at the age Joshua would be yeah that's, that's what a, are the moments that that's that an interesting point because I think um, maybe I was more acutely aware of the difficulties that Joshua would have faced um, so by, by the time when he when he when he died away uh, when he died he was um, officially diagnosed with cerebral palsy from the doctors now this diagnosis they had never given us before but we always knew that that was what, what the problem was um, and I think I was more acutely aware maybe than just an, of the problems that he and that that he was going to face in the future and that we were going to face as parents you know as a married couple so I find it hard now sometimes see if I would if I was imagining Joshua now then I cannot just imagine a happy healthy eight-year-old yeah. I see everything else that he would, would be in a wheelchair exactly. oxygen dependent yes, absolutely fed. yeah and I think actually what I struggled with more afterwards was the fact that we weren't going to have any more children after that mm. so after we came to Ireland um, obviously we did discuss this you know would we have more children would we try this again and coming back to and Luca, who was born with the cleft lip and the palate and the three miscarriages and then the Joshua's early birth, I said, I can't do this again unless somebody can guarantee me that I have a perfect pregnancy and a birth without any problems and nobody can guarantee that. Yeah. I said, I can't do this again because I don't think, mm. you know, if something goes wrong, I can't do this a second time around. Once, was that a grief in itself for you to come to that yes. decision? Um, that and then later on realizing that you know by the time when Luca was four or five or six and then realizing that there wasn't going to be a sibling for him that was a far more difficult thing for me and you have to be very careful then also that you don't project that onto your other child you know and I had to be very careful at some stage that I didn't do that and I very explain that a little bit that you didn't so that make you need his need or y yes so that you don't say this necessarily out loud that oh you know it would be nice if you had brothers or sisters you know because now I mean now I'm in, in, a, in a very different place now I because I worked through this a lot and I I'm very happy that we have a happy and healthy 12 year old and he's happy in himself and and he makes friends you know in his environment through his school and also here in Greystones and 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 we've we've discussed this at home we said you know you you can have siblings but it doesn't always mean 
also that you're best friends you know there's also people that don't necessarily are best friends with it with their siblings when they're older so it's not guaranteed that when you have brothers or sisters that everything is always going to be rosy mm. and um, and he's very happy and and where he is now the way he is, he is now he's he's happy on his own um and he does sometimes you know this is actually a few years ago he saw other situations of friends who maybe had brothers and sisters and it was all sometimes it was quite difficult and he always said or he said them to me one day or he said to us you know I'm, I'm i'm quite happy that i'm on my own because i don't have to have these yeah. fights or whatever and, and mm. i can just go out and be with my friends and then i can come home and i can be on my own as well and so but when you're going through this process and i think it's very important that if you see people who or parents who have one child that i would be I'd be very certain that this isn't always out of choice. There's often a reason behind that. Yeah. Um, but you have to be careful then that, you know, and there's, a, there's a grieving process that you go through because you're not going to have another child. And you, you know when you have one child, you have room for more love for other children, but you're not going to be able to, to, to do that. But you get to the stage where you accept and you say, no, actually, you know, I have one and I, I'm happy with where our life is now you know he's a bit older now and we can now do things that you know if we'd had another two or three old would be more difficult so it's that's a different grieving process than the one when you're actually losing yeah. your child yeah and I think that for me was more of a challenge in the years after than it was for Justin I think for Justin it was it was the loss of Joshua that was harder for him than for me it was more you know, I was. I don't it. want this to come across the wrong way. I think I was more acutely aware of the difficulties Joshua had or would have had, and that we would have had. Yeah. So. And where is Joshua for you now? Where do you carry him, or where do you find him? Where do I find him? That's a good point. He's in my heart. He's in my. He, you know, I still. I think of him every day. There would be something that would remind me of him. Um, it's not as not as painful as it was in the first year, two, three years. Um, mm. So I said it does get better, definitely mm. does. But there's obviously there is, you know, and that's that was that started on the moment on the the moment the morning when I woke up and my waters had broken. There is this hope that suddenly, this this dream that you have that you you know of your second child or first child, and, and you suddenly realise this is obviously not going to go the way mm. I was wishing. It would go life-changing experiences yeah life-changing thank you so much Beatrice it's a pleasure yeah really thank (laughs) you sorry it's a long story (laughs) no I'm I've no doubt that people listening will have a better understanding maybe find a little bit more compassion yeah for other people going through something similar yeah or god forbid that they might face into it themselves someday um it's sharing these stories helps to normalize it and prevent a little bit Absolutely. Not, that you, not that I want to normalize your experience that's not a normal experience but that people might have a bit more courage to knock on the door or come in yeah. or get involved offer support yeah absolutely. sometimes we can assume oh there's family there or this they're being looked after but there can be a lot of loneliness and isolation absolutely yeah yeah and and sometimes it can just be small small gestures that can that can make that can mean world and um, yeah yeah. and uh, like you said it doesn't always have to be a family or close friends sometimes it's it it can be lovely even if it's somebody that you don't know very well or or, Mm. no it's it's often those people who actually come up trumps yes 
And yeah. just the point you made about, you know, when we come across families where there's no children yeah. or there's one child, like it's one of two things. Mm. Either that's their choice or they can't have more. Yeah. So just to, you know, the insensitivity of, of questioning or demanding to know why yeah. or have you thought about, you know, it's a sensitive area. Exactly. It's a really yeah. sensitive area. Yeah. So if it brings a little bit more awareness to people, I really thank you for that. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. If your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You are not alone. Join the Shapes of Grief community in our private Facebook group and find more support and useful links on shapesofgrief.com. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well.